so much, church, for being here today. Thank you so much for being here last week. We had a really successful weekend, our Paul Family Fun Fest, because of a couple of things that happened, we moved that back later than we've ever done it before, and uh, we felt like things went really well. We had lots of new folks around here. We had a great time together, enjoying some good food, and I heard so many great comments about the worship last week. Give it up for our worship team. Don't they do
And so we're going to give you time before we invite you at the end of the service uh, to, to reflect and to pray and to ask God to clean you up all over again before we come and take this communion meal. And uh, by the way, here we take communion by intention, which means when you come up, you'll grab a piece of the bread, you'll dip it in the juice, and then you will partake. That's how we handle communion here. It helps us to move everybody through uh, in, in a timely fashion. But I believe there's real power in the Lord's Supper. I don't believe it's just a dead symbol. I don't believe it saves you. I don't believe if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never accepted him, and you come up here and eat the bread and you, and you drink the wine and the juice that we serve, I, I don't think that's going to save you. But I think there is a real power and real grace in it. Uh, a lot of Christians traditionally have taken communion pretty often because they believe there was something real and tangible, a real grace for living, and we believe that as well. So. That's just a little background on communion today. My sermon is going a whole different direction, but it's funny how God has woven everything together. And by the way, after you take communion, you don't want to leave because we've got kind of we got a special guest singer that's going to come up and, and be part of the worship team at the end. And we've got a special song that actually our worship team arranged, and I think it's going to be really cool. So you don't want to miss that. So make sure you hang out with us all the way to the end of the service today if you the title of my sermon today, we're still in the series called Greater Than, that we started last week. The title of my sermon today is Giving Thanks is Greater Than Giving In. Giving Thanks is Greater Than Giving In. And that giving in specifically refers to sexual immorality is what I'm going to be talking about. The reason I'm talking about that today is we're going through the book of Ephesians and this point of the scripture, that's what it talks about. So I want to give you fair warning child who you might not want them to hear sensitive information, sensitive topics. It would be great if you availed yourself of Rushwood Kids. It's right across the way. They know that we might have some people who decide to come late today because of the topic I'm speaking on. So they'll be over there and they'll be ready to help your kid get checked into that program. Your child, I shouldn't say kid, your child checked into that program uh, if you think you should. So I just wanted to always try to give you fair warning. We're not getting into a lot of gory details and we're not going to you know, be graphic. That's not what we're about here. But I do want you to know that we're going to broach some subjects that are adult in level. And I want you to be aware of that as parents. If you're new to our church, you might still be trying to figure this place out. And if you were here last week, we tried to have a really uplifting service. And I think God helped us with that. And I think the worship was uplifting. And man, I struggled to find the right story to tell the gospel with. And the Lord reminded me of the story of Donnie that I told last week and the story of him being down in the cave. The Lord brought all that. I feel like the Lord brought all that together and was behind all that. And so we had a really uplifting day last week. Today's probably not going to be as uplifting because of the topic on which I'm speaking. And I want you to understand if you're coming to church here that we're not trying to offend you or shock you every week. That's not what we're all about. But at the same we want to uplift you from time to time. But at the same time, we want to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. We don't just want to cherry-pick the parts that make us feel good. Now, we might put it this way. We don't want to always eat dessert. Dessert is great. We all enjoy dessert. But if all we ever have is a steady diet of dessert, that's not going to be really good for us. We need some protein. We need some other things in our diet. And so today, you might be getting a little bit more meat in your diet. You might be getting a little bit more protein. And just to be honest with you, I think today's message is going to be challenging. It's challenging not only for you guys, it's challenging for me as well, because although I'm a 
pastor, I live in this culture. And this is a tough culture in which to be pure. It's a tough culture. Everything is set against our purity. There's not things lined up for our purity. There are things that come against our purity. And so as I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself as well. I don't want to bring condemnation. I want to bring hope in Jesus Christ, hope for holiness, hope that we can rise above. But I get it. I understand that where we're going today is kind of a tough place to go. Well, I'm going to stop introducing everything. I'm just going to dive right on into the scripture so we can look at that today. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, reading out of the New American Standard Bible. God's word says this, Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality, here's the crux of what I'm going to be preaching on today, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not be even named among you as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For you know this with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I want to stop right there for a second. I want you to understand the gravity of what we're talking about today. I want you, I don't want to diffuse the tension right now. I don't want to let you off the hook too much because if I can translate that last section for you, basically what it's saying is we are talking about things today that can keep you out of heaven. We are talking about things today that if not rectified, if not set right, can keep you out of heaven, can determine your eternity the wrong direction. So that's how serious the stuff we're talking about today is. And I don't want to let you off the hook by just saying, well, God is a God of grace and God forgives and God is a God of mercy. And all that's true. That's all that's true. But in the Bible, repentance always precedes God's grace and mercy. And so we need to understand that if we want to live in unrepentant sin, if we want to have a pattern and a lifestyle that goes against God's word, I'm not making this up. This isn't Brent's word. This is God's word. For you know this with certainty. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So this is serious stuff we're talking about today, y'all. Serious stuff. So I want us to come in and get this while we're talking about this today. Eternities are at stake. Back to God's word. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, there are things here that if you practice them and keep on practicing them without repentance, you will ultimately be separated from God for all eternity. That doesn't feel good for me to say it. That doesn't feel good for you to hear it. But I tell you, being separated from God for all eternity will feel much worse. And so we need to talk about these sort of things. We need to be aware of these sort of things. We need to look at our life and hold it up to the light of God's word, examine it, and see if our life is matching the walk that God is asking us to walk. You 
And so I, it, it was nothing but love that I had for my son, Aiden. But at the same time, I knew there was a place on Aiden. There was a dangerous spot on Aiden that if it was not taken care of, if something wasn't done, it could endanger his life. And there's a chance I could lose my son. That's how God, I believe, sees us. God looks at us. We come to him. He knows that we are his children. He knows uh, that, that he loves us and that he gave his son Jesus for us. But he looks at us sometimes. He looks at our lives and he says, there are dangerous spots in your life. And you've got to get these dangerous spots corrected. In fact, you need to have them removed because if you keep these dangerous spots on and on and on, it can eventually endanger your relationship with God. And so, yes, at the same time, God loves us as a father loves children, but at the same time, he loves us too much to let us keep our spots. He loves us too much to be okay with those things that will endanger our walk with him. And so that's what the section of scripture that I read is really all about. God, through Paul, is giving us basically three dangerous spots that can be in our lives that need to be removed. So if they are removed, we will be able to have a good relationship with our Father. And if they're not removed, they can endanger our walk. The first one that Paul points out here, first major spot in this section of Ephesians 5, is a spot called immorality. Immorality. If we go to the Greek, the Greek word uh, that we translate as immorality is actually the Greek word porneia. Porneia, you might notice right off the bat, that's where we get our word pornography. But porneia actually means any sort of sexual immorality. That is porneia. That is something that we are supposed to avoid. You say, well, Brent, why, who gets to define sexual immorality? God. God gets to define what's immoral. He's the one that created sex. He's the one that designed it. He designed male-female relationships to work the way they do. God created it. He gets to define it. And so his definition of sexual immorality is any sexual relationship that takes place outside of a male-female covenant married relationship. Anything outside of that is porneia. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. If you want a more extensive list, you can go in the Old Testament and you can turn to Leviticus chapter 18. And in Leviticus chapter 18, it's very specific about what's right and what's wrong. And that was God's word to his people. That was God's word to Israel. But if you do a careful reading of Leviticus 18, you'll notice that God also judged the nations that were around Israel for those sins. In other words, these were not sins that were specific to the Jewish law. These were sins that were specific for all people at all times, in all places. And God actually judged the nations before Israel because of their sexual immorality. immorality. So Leviticus 18 gives you the list. Don't go there right now. I want you to stay where we are, but you might want to do that later. But let's be honest. Let's be real. I don't like to, I don't like to fake things. I don't like to put on a front here. Let's be honest. Most people today think the biblical rules on sex are either, number one, stupid, or number two, unkeepable. They're either stupid or they're just way too tough. Nobody can do this. Nobody can live up to this. I'll be honest with you guys. I do, I do pre-marriage counseling for couples, and I love to do pre-marriage counseling for couples because 
The reason God cares who you sleep with is because sex is a powerful thing. God created it to be a powerful thing. Used within God's boundaries, sex is part of creating a family. It's part of bringing new life into this world. And yes, believe it or not, God made it for pleasure for husbands and wives. That's how God designed it. It's a good thing when used in the right way. And by the way, some of you guys are older folks. I know when you were younger, the pastors didn't preach like this. That's probably why we're in the mess we're in today. They let the world do all the talking, and they were scared to bring it up. Well, I'm not scared to bring it up because I don't want the world to be the only voice that's out there. Sex being used for good and sex being used for evil is boundaries. And God gives us boundaries for our blessing. We have to, if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we believe in what this Bible says, if we want to have faith and we want to follow him, then we have to assume he knows more than we do. We have to assume his ways are right and good. Let every man be a liar, but let's believe God. And so I encourage you, young folks, stay pure. You can do it. You actually can do it. The world tells you you cannot. They're lying to you. It's a lie from Satan. You can stay pure. You actually can reflect the love of God and the purity of God in your relationships. You can actually wait for marriage. It can actually happen. So sexual immorality, that's one of the dangerous spots. The second danger spot that Paul mentions here is something called impurity. Akathosia is the Greek word. You're never going to remember that, but that's okay. What you really need to know is literally impurity means to stop feeling. To stop feeling. Akathosia is the word where we get catharsis from. A means no. Catharsis means deep emotions. You stop having deep emotions. And so impurity is anything that surrounds sexual immorality that leads to it or encourages it. Anything that happens that makes people end up in this area of sexual immorality. Anything that makes us not feel what we're supposed to feel. There's a verse in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 8, talking about God's people who have run into sexual immorality. And it says they do not even know how to blush. They don't even know how to be ashamed anymore. They don't even see things that are lewd or, or ugly or vulgar and, and they're, they don't even turn red anymore. They don't even blush because they're so used to it. They're so desensitized. Well, tell me we don't live in a culture that's doing everything to desensitize us. Everything it possibly can. It's a concerted effort to desensitize us. Satan wants to numb you out to sexual immorality. He knows he probably cannot get you to be sexually immoral overnight. So what he has to do first is anesthetize you against being embarrassed about anything, against having any sort of morals about anything, against feeling what God would have you feel about sexual immorality. You say, well, Brent, how does Satan do that? How does he anesthetize us against feeling what we should feel? I, originally, I had several answers written down in my sermon, but I'm just going to go with one today. Popular culture. Popular culture is set up to make us not feel what we're supposed to feel about sexual immorality. Television, movies, books, music, the internet.
says is wrong, go ahead with your feelings. If it feels good, do it. If you wouldn't have these feelings if they weren't natural, go ahead and act on them. It does everything to tear down the Word of God and make us open to all sorts of stuff. There's stuff going on in our nation, and I don't even want to get into it uh, today too much, but there's stuff going on in our nation. 20 years ago, we would not have even, it would have blown our minds to know that sort of thing was going on. And today we're like, yeah, there it goes again. We've lost the feeling that we're supposed to feel. We've been anesthetized against feeling embarrassed about certain things. I talk to the kids for a second. Let me call to mom and dad for just a second. And I need to say this in love. I need to say this the right way because I could get too harsh here. But let me, let me put it this way. You cannot let your kids put garbage into their minds and expect that they're going to have good things come into their lives. You cannot do it. Bad roots, bad fruit. Garbage in, garbage out. It's a principle that's always going to happen. I see parents, and I know parents, you want your kids to like you. And you want them to think, you don't want them to think you're, you know, you're old and, and, and not with it anymore and, and don't get what's going on. And so you want to go right as close to the line as you can and allow as much as you can in their lives because you want your kids to like you, and so you're allowing some garbage in their lives. I don't care if my kids like me or not. I want my kids to respect me. I want my kids to respect me. I want them to love me, but they don't have to like me. My kids, several times a week, walk around mad at that. I don't care. My job is not to be their best buddy. It's not to make be their best friend. My job is to raise them. against us, but I want to move as far God's way as I possibly can to 
get as much immorality and impurity out of my life as I can. Last thought that's dangerous, one more. The Bible translates it, the translation I'm using translates it as greed. The Greek word is pleonexia, but it's probably better translated covetousness. You remember the, in the Ten Commandments, don't covet. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't desire what's not yours. A good definition of coveting is, I have to have it. I have to have it. Don't care what God thinks. Don't care what mom and dad think. Don't care what the church thinks. Don't care what my spouse thinks. I have to have it. I, I have a desire for it. I have to have it. Me, me, me. All about me. My body, my way, my choice. All, you know, all about me. That's a covetous attitude. Samson in the book of Judges, probably the strongest man who ever lived. Amazing judge, amazingly gifted, but he goes down and he sees a Philistine woman and he says, I have to have her. Gotta have her. What's interesting about Samson is God raised him up to fight who? The Philistines. But he sees a Philistine woman and says, I have to have her. Isn't it amazing the things that we're raised Sometimes God raises us up to fight. That's what Satan tempts us with. God tempts us to go against the very mission that God called us for, that God called us to. So he's supposed to be fighting the Philistines, but he goes to his parents and says, he goes to his dad, and I don't know if this dude or what kind of parent issues he had or whatever, but anyway, he says to his parents, go get her for me. Dad, go get her for me. I desire her. And dad says, no, son, no, Samson, that's not right. You need to find a godly girl. You need to find a good Jewish Hebrew girl. Go get you one of the girls singing in the choir, okay? That's what you need to do, Samson. You need to find somebody like that. But Samson says, I have to have her. He's coveting. He's lusting. I have to have her. He's being a greedy man. And so Samson ends up getting her. And because of that, Samson ends up blind and powerless and broken because of his own stubborn greed. And yes, he eventually defeats the Philistines, but he, he defeats them at the cost of his own life. Why? Because greed and covetousness overwhelmed him. He had to have something that God wouldn't have had him have, his parents wouldn't have had him have, his people wouldn't have him have, but he had to have it. He was coveting, and so it ruined. God still fulfilled his destiny only by his grace, but it ruined the life that Samson could have had. How many families have been ruined by coveting? I have to have. I have to have. I had a pastor, uh, he was a, a leader, a church leader, talking to a pastor's group several years ago. He looked at us guys and he said, she's out there. He said, she is out there. He said, she's out there. Satan's going to use her to try to trip you up. And he said, the past three pastors that tripped up that he had to work with were almost retirement age, were within two years of retirement age when they tripped up with a woman because of lust. This pastor, I'll never forget him saying that. He said, she's out there, and right now she looks like the most beautiful woman who's ever been. And he said, as soon as Satan gets his hooks in you and gets you to do the wrong thing, then all that, all that illusion is going to disappear. And you're going to see her for who she really is, and you're going to see you really are, but it's going to be too late. You're going to have ruined everything. And he warned us very sternly, be careful of the one that Satan has out there. Be careful of coveting and saying, I have to have. I have to have. That's a selfish attitude. How many families have been ruined? How many businesses have been ruined? 
How many churches have been ruined because somebody had to have? Give me what I want. It's my body. You can't tell me what to do. I'm my own person. That sort of attitude. And then destruction comes. <coughs> and these three spots I talked about are really a progression. You've got, Im you've got impurity, which leads to immorality. And then you have greed or covetousness, which inflames the whole thing. And all of a sudden, you've got a mess. All of a sudden, your walk is messed up. Your testimony is messed up. Your life, your family, everything is messed up because of these three spots. So what's the solution? What will remove these danger spots of immorality, impurity, and greed? You know, I can stand up here this morning and I can tell you, you need to try harder to be pure. And that's not going to do a whole lot, I don't believe. Because if you're bent on being immoral, if you're bent on being impure, whatever I say is probably not going to help you a whole lot. Try harder does not always get the work done. Because I doubt your human willpower is strong enough to really make much of a difference. And I can try to scare you into avoiding these things, and I kind of did because I told you these are the kind of things that will affect your eternity. And that's what the Bible says. I'm not just making that up. But to be honest, you're, if, you're, if you're hooked on these sort of things, you're very blind. Kind of like Samson. You can't see what you're supposed to see anymore. And so trying to scare you into these things a lot of times won't work. To be honest, if you really want to do these things, if you really are enjoying these spots that are in your life, you're probably just going to rationalize anything I say away. I hate to be that honest and that blunt, but it's probably true. You're just going to rationalize it away. So what can we do? Well, if we read the first part of Ephesians 5 carefully again, God gives us what I think is a very unexpected answer. We would probably not have come up with this on our own as a cure to these three spots. But Ephesians 5, 4 says this. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Giving of thanks. That's interesting. Could it be that thankfulness is the cure to immorality? Could it be that being a more thankful person will keep us pure and to help us live a more godly life? Here's a theory. I don't know if I've worked this all out yet, but it's a working theory that I have. The theory I have is that all sexual sin actually comes from a lack of gratitude to God. All sexual sin actually comes from a lack of gratitude to God. Think about it for a second. Let me try to build on this theory. A virgin who is not thankful enough for their sexual purity wants to get rid of their sexual purity. They're not thankful enough for what God has in their life. They, 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 he's kept them pure up to that point, and they want to lose that because they're not thankful enough for it. I heard a story years ago of a cheerleader who was a virgin in high school, and all her cheerleading mates were not. And they kept making fun of her and kept picking on her and kept downing her for trying to stay pure, waiting for marriage, trying to live a godly life, and they did that for a while. And finally, she turned around and looked at them and said, Look, I want you ladies to understand something. She said, anytime I want, I can become like you. But you can never be like me again. It's something very valuable. If you're a single person and you have stayed pure, that is so valuable. In fact, it's a wedding gift for your spouse on your wedding night. Why give that away? Why give that away? You're probably not thankful enough if you're somebody who's never been sexually active and you want to get rid of that. If you're a person who's engaged, 
You should be thankful that you kept yourself pure for your wedding night. And I have people say, well, you know, if we're engaged, we can go ahead and sleep together. Engagements break off. You do know that, right? People get left at the altar. Things happen, okay? This is not dead set that this is going to be the spouse that you have for the rest of your life. And if you've waited that long, why not keep on waiting until today? doesn't make any sense to me. But engaged persons should be thankful that they've been kept pure for their wedding night. A married person should be thankful for their spouse. And I'll be honest with you, when I counsel husbands and wives, that's one of the biggest problems I see is they're not thankful enough for the person God has given them. I had one couple come in one time, and I'll never tell you names when I do counseling. I'll never tell you names or specific where you could identify anybody. I, I won't do that. But this couple came in, and man, you could tell they could not stand each other anymore. Everything she said about him was bad. Everything he said about her was bad. And man, they had a list a mile long of bad things about each other. And I said, all right, stop for a minute. Got a question to ask you. What made you fall in love with them? Wife, what made you fall in love with husband? Husband, what made you fall in love with your wife? And furthermore, tell me something good. Tell me something you love about them. Tell me something you enjoy about them. And they did that, and then they, this couple looked at me and said, it's been so long since we've done that, we've almost forgotten how to do it. Maybe that's their problem. They weren't thankful enough for their spouse, not thankful enough for the one that God has given them. And look, I know your spouse isn't perfect because you're married to a human being and none of us were perfect unless our name is Jesus Christ. So I know wife, your husband isn't perfect and husband, your wife isn't perfect. I get that. At the same time, you should be thankful for the one God has blessed you with. I think sexual sin is a lack of thankfulness. It's a lack of gratitude. When we sin, it's because we want something more than what God has given us. That's why Paul calls it idolatry. We want something more than God and his blessings. So why don't you try this? This will be a radical idea, but I believe it's a biblical idea. Try this. When you are tempted, not just with sexual sin, but maybe with any sin, when you are tempted, why don't you count your blessings? Why don't you just start and say, God, thank you for the air that's in my lungs right God, thank you for the house I get to live in. God, it's not the greatest house ever, but it sure is a blessing. I've got a roof over my head. I've got air conditioning. I've got heat. Lord, you're good to me. God, thank you for the car I drive. God, thank you for my wife or my husband. God, thank you for the kids in my life. God, thank you for my church. Just go through the list of blessings that God has given you. Count them one by one. And I bet all of a sudden, whatever's tempting you is going to seem a lot smaller. And the goodness of God is going to seem a lot bigger. Thankfulness. Why don't we be a people of thanks? One last Greek word I want to teach you today. It's actually the giving of thanks. And the, the word is Eucharistia. Eucharistia. It's actually where we get the word for communion. I was blown away. I, I was kind of thinking, how am I going to tie this sermon in with communion? Because it just doesn't seem like it would go together. And then when I went and studied the Greek behind the text, I found was already in what I was preaching on. God tied it all together. Ministers and ministerial students, you guys can go ahead and come and, and, and start to take place here. We're going to prepare our hearts here before we take communion. In a minute, we're going to call you up and, uh, and we're going to try something a little different than we did last time. We're going to ask you to still come to these aisles, but we're going to ask that everybody exit your pew on the right side. 
and return to where you're sitting on the left side. So actually make a circle. If that doesn't make any sense, just do the best you can. But we're asking to move this way and then back that way to re-enter. But when we come to this table, it is a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of thanksgiving. It, it, the word Eucharist actually means giving of thanks. So we're going to come and we're going to give thanks for the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. We're going to give thanks for the salvation that we have that's only found in Him. We're going to give thanks for what He did on the old rugged cross. We're going to give thanks for the empty tomb. We're going to give thanks that one day Jesus is returning again. And all this struggle will be over and all the division will be over. And we'll know as we're known and we'll enjoy His presence forever. And that's going to be wonderful. So as you come today, I want you to give thanks. I want you to concentrate on the goodness of God. And when you take that piece of bread and you dip it into the juice, and as you put that into your mouth, as you swallow that down, as you take it into you today, I want you to swallow in the blessings of God. I want you to think about what he's done for you. I want you to take in the goodness of who he is. We sang earlier today, you are good, and God is good. Sure to all kinds of sins would be if we would just be more thankful, if we would be a more thankful people, a more grateful people than we are. We're going to take just a minute here. I ask that you would bow your heads. If there's anything in your heart, anything in your life that you need to confess to God right where you are in your pew, confess it. Ask God to clean you up. Ask Him to restore you. Ask Him to prepare your heart as you come and we take this meal together today. And in just a minute, I'm going to call you up. Please come to the first available serving pair, and let's take the Lord's Supper together in just a couple of minutes. We'll call you up.